This is Foothill Family Church with Mike Webb. Building strong, spirit-filled lives through God's Word. We've been teaching a series on uh, the glory of the Lord for the last several weeks, and we want to continue along that line. Uh, Last uh, Sunday morning, if you were with us, we talked about a lot of things regarding God's plan. And we went back to the, uh, to the story of creation. We went back to some things that the Bible says about um, uh, the conditions of the earth and, and the conditions that existed when God created man in his image. But uh, Haggai chapter 2, we want to use these or have been using these as a text scripture. God is speaking. And here's what God says about the last days regarding the church. It says, and I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come. Now, the desire of all nations, as we've talked about before, the Bible says the earth is groaning and travailing together until the manifestation of the sons of God. It's talking about the rapture. So he's talking about end time events. So he says, I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come. In other words, Jesus is saying before the rapture comes, all the nations will shake. But he says, I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come. And here's the last day condition as well. I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. As we said before, that's not talking about the second temple. He's talking about the church. God's plan was never to build, to, to live in a building, but to live in you, because you're his building. Paul said that you are the building of God. You're the house of God. So his desire is to fill you with glory. And I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. Verse 8, the silver is mine, and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, we've said this before. We don't want to go into a lot of detail about it, because um, there's a lot of speculation and a lot of disagreement about it. I'm just going to let you figure it out for yourself. Silver and gold has something to do with glory. Or else, why would he say it? He hasn't changed subjects. So when he's talking about filling the house with glory, when he's talking about the last day condition of the church, he's talking about silver and gold in connection with it in some way or another. You figure out whatever you want that to mean for yourself. And may I say what Jesus said, according to your faith, be it unto you. A lot of the church world is saying, ah, oh, that prosperity stuff, forget that, they're just greedy people. Well, according to your faith, be it unto you. You want to believe that God wants you to be poor? Be it unto you according to your faith. Folks, that's the way the Bible works. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. Verse 9, the glory of this latter house, again, he's talking about the church, shall be greater than of the former. That's talking about Solomon's temple. The former, the only former house they had of God prior to that point in time, or relative to that point in time where these words are spoken, or either the tabernacle in the wilderness, which never was considered to be the house of God or the temple of God, and Solomon's temple, which was filled with glory to such a degree when it was dedicated that the priest couldn't stand to minister. The presence of God was so real in that place that people couldn't even enter into the place. So he says, the glory of this latter house, the church, shall be greater than of the former. In other words, the glory of God shall be seen more on the church than it was seen on Solomon's temple. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place, the church, the house of God, will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, as I mentioned before, we talked a lot about uh, um, the creation of man last last Sunday morning. We saw in Genesis chapter 1 the conditions prior to God creating mankind. Uh, we went into some detail about that, and, and I, I, we don't have time to go through all the, the information. If you weren't here with us last Sunday, 
Uh, let me encourage you to get a hold of the, the tape or the CD or whatever means of, you know, however you listen to stuff. Let me encourage you to get a hold of that because uh, what we're going to say this morning is going to build on that, but we don't have time to go back and, and re-say what we said. But we will kind of uh, summarize a couple of things. When God recreates the earth, he makes uh, the earth, he makes the, uh, he calls for the earth to bring forth seed. He doesn't, he doesn't say from nothing tree be. He says, let the earth bring forth her seed. In other words, there was something in the earth that, uh, that, tra- that, uh, that grew into the plants and the animal, or the, not the animals, but the plants and the, the vegetation and, and all the things that God commanded. Then he made the animals and he uh, made everything that was uh, sufficient for man, put everything in place that would, uh, that would provide for man. And then he said in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, let us make man in our own image. Let us make man in our own image. And let them, mankind in other words, male and female, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and all the earth, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Now we also looked at Psalm chapter 8. And I would like for you to turn there with me, if you will, to, to remind yourself or refresh your, your memory about what, uh, what the Bible says about the creation of man. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that these were the angels or an angel's reaction to the creation of Adam in the, in the Garden of Eden. The angels, looking upon this scene, declare something. Now remember, the angels are eternal. Well, they're eternal, but they were created beings. So they had a beginning, and their beginning was way before God created the Genesis count of Adam and Eve. So now the angels are watching this, and and they said, verse 3, beginning in verse 3, Psalm 8, verse 3, it says, When I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. As I said, Hebrews chapter 2 says this is the angels. This is not David saying, wow, God, you really made something cool here. This is the angels talking about the original creation. So he said, when I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man? In other words, the angels are saying, this thing that you're creating called man, that you gave dominion over all the works of your hands, this thing called man is not anything we've ever seen before. This is unique to any of your creation. This is unique to anything you've ever done before. It's unique to anything else that's in the universe. It's unique to anything else that was ever here on the earth before. This is unique. What is man that thou art mindful of him? Now, mindful of him is, is kind of a, uh, well, it's kind of vanilla in the, in the King James. But think about what that means. The Bible says that when God created man, God came down to the earth to walk with man in the cool of the garden. Every other being has to come to God. But God came to man. Every other thing that God created, he created with his fingers. He created with his hands. But the Bible says that he breathed into man the breath of life. Now, the picture that that paints to it for us from the original Hebrew language is God created the form or the body of man, stood him up, and breathed into him or talked to him. He probably said, breathing into him is probably God using his voice to say, life be, just like he said, light be, on the first day of creation. Or something to that effect. I, I, I'm not saying I've got all the answers on that or got it all figured out. God hadn't showed me anything about that. That's just the word picture that the, that the Hebrew language provides for us. So he breathed into man the breath of life. It's the only thing that became alive that way. It's the only thing that God took of himself to put in to any other created being. He didn't even do that with the angels. That's why the, one of the reasons, I think, why the angels are saying, what is this thing called man? You didn't create us like that. 
You don't come to us. We come to you. And we, as your servants, we carry out your instructions and we do the things that you tell us to do. But you give man authority. You gave man dominion over all the works of your hands. What is this thing called man? So what is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that thou visitest him. Now this word visitest does not have as much to do with coming down to, to, to be with him in the garden as it does God coming to him to breathe into him the breath of life. Verse 5. For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. You look up that word angels. It's the, it's the word Elohim. It's literally the angels saying you have made him a little lower than you. Not lower than us. You've made him a little lower than you. He's above us but under you. It almost sounds like a jealous kid. Mom, how come you did that for my brother? You didn't do, never did that for me. Thou hast made him a little lower than yourself, Elohim, the Godhead. And you have crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. Now the angels tell us more information about what God did than the Genesis account, Genesis account does. Because the Genesis account in Genesis 126 where we see, where we read or referred to a few minutes ago, God said, let us make man in our own image and let them have dominion. That's all he said. Let them have dominion over the works of our hands. Here it says you crowned him with glory and honor. You crowned him with glory and honor and then gave him dominion. You crowned him with glory and honor. Now, this is the same glory. It's, in the Old Testament particularly, there is one primary word that's used for glory. In the New Testament, there are two words that are used for glory. If you look in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew, along with the Greek New Testament, which is the original language of the New Testament, you'll find out that it's the same word used throughout. Same word used throughout, with the exception of the few times in the New Testament where a different word is used. Now, what does the word glory really mean? We've described it. We've looked at scriptures in the Old Testament where it was the, the cloud, where it was like smoke, where it was a glistening, literally a light within a cloud or a light like in, inside of a fog. We've seen that it was a, a light that shined from heaven around Saul on the road to Damascus that was brighter than the noonday sun. Paul said that he couldn't see for three days for the glory of that light. Not because he was blind, not because there was some kind of sickness or something that came upon him, but because of the brightness of that light. And that's in the middle of the day. So we've described different things that the Bible says about the glory of God, but what does glory really mean? Glory seems to be one of those words that you're supposed to understand what it means without having a definition. Because so many of the definitions you'll find, even from the original the words that are used, both Hebrew and Greek, they use the same word. They use glory to describe glory. Now, in the, in the, the Greek, and this would be the definition in Jesus' day, the Septuagint um, uh, it was the Bible of Jesus' day, literally. It was the Bible of Jesus' day. It was the Bible that was, uh, that was readily available to the common man. It was the Septuagint. And so it's the, the, the Greek translation from the Hebrew, which everybody understood and the, um, uh, and everybody except the Orthodox Jews used as the Bible. Now you understand as well as I do that all they had was the Old Testament. The New Testament hadn't been written when Jesus was here on the earth. But most of the references in the New Testament to Old Testament scriptures are from the Greek or literally the Septuagint translation of the Hebrew. So it's, therefore it's pretty reliable. 
It's not exact. Nothing is. I've never found any translations that's, that's, that doesn't have something in it that contradicts uh, the character and the nature of God in some way or another. But the but in some ways the Septuagint is more reliable than the King James because the, the Hebrew language very often gives two different meanings and sometimes two opposite meanings for the same word. In other words, one meaning... Uh, well, in Isaiah chapter 45, where God said, I form the light and create evil. The word create that's translated in the King James means two things. It means I either make it or I cut down. The same word means both things. Well, in so many times, the translators translated according to their understanding of God. A translation is never going to be any better than the, the knowledge of the language that the translators have and their knowledge of God. Every translation is going to be based on those two things. Well, sometimes their knowledge of the language is good, but their knowledge of God is really lousy. And as such, the King James English comes out saying that God does a lot of things that the Bible says he doesn't do. And in most cases, it's simply a matter of the translation. It's not an error in the text, it's just an error in the translation. So this translated word, glory, in the Greek, literally means this. It's the word doxa. It's where we get, you ever heard the doxology? It means something that is given to the glory of God. Jesus talked a lot about glory. Paul talked a lot about glory. John talked some. James talked some. Peter talked some. 177 times the word glory is in the New Testament. 150 of those 177 times is the word doxa. Now there are 27 times where a different word is used as translated glory. And it always means to boast. Examples of this would be, uh, well, let me read a couple of examples of this just to give you an idea. Most of the, uh, or many of the examples are right there together where Paul is talking about his own, um, his own situation, his thorn in the flesh. For example, he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 30, he said, if I must needs glory or boast, I will glory or boast of those things which concern my infirmities. Chapter 12 verse 1. It is not expedient for me thou, doubtless to glory or boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. He talks about the one caught up into the third heaven. Verse 5 of 2 Corinthians 12, he says, Of such a one will I glory or boast. Yet of myself will I not glory or boast, but in my own infirmities. Verse 6, For though I would desire to glory or boast, I shall not be as a fool. For I will say the truth, but now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that which he heareth of me. In other words, that's the problem with boasting. People think the wrong things about you. He goes on in verse 9 where the Lord answers him when he prays three times for this persecution to be taken away from him. The Lord said unto me, My grace is sufficient in thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather boast in my infirmities that the power of, the, of Christ may rest upon me. So even though the New Testament, uh, or even though the King James translate the, translates this word as glory, it's literally the word boast. But every other time, 150 times out of 177 times in the New Testament. This word glory, English word glory, is the word doxa in the Greek. And it means this. It's from the base of a word, another Greek word, that means to think. So the word glory is designed to make you think something. And it means simply this. It means, and here's the definition. I'm reading it straight out of the Strong's. It says glory as very apparent. In a wide application, literally or figuratively, objectively or subjectively, dignity, glory, glorious, honor, praise, worship. Okay, so does everybody know what glory means now? (laughs) Now, for the Bible to talk so much about the glory of God, for us not to know what it means, 
That's significant, isn't it? I could read this all day, and I have. And I come away thinking, yeah, but what does it mean? Well, it means glory. Okay. In a wide application, either literally or figuratively. Oh, that helps. Either objectively or subjectively. Great. So I spent a lot of time praying about this this week. Because I really got to the place where I said, wait a minute, all right, I know what glory is supposed to be. I've got some some vague image of what glory is supposed to be. But honestly, my definition of glory is about as cloudy as, as what the Bible says that the glory of the Lord was in the Old Testament. What is it really supposed to mean? And I believe the Lord gave me something. I'm going to let you judge it for yourself, but I believe the Lord gave me something. It's the wow factor. Join Mike Webb and Foothill Family Church every Sunday night at 6 p.m. for our weekly healing school. It is much more of a school than any other healing service I'd been to. Pastor Mike goes through the specific scriptures in the Bible that point to the healing power of God. Again, that's Healing School each Sunday night, led by Pastor Mike Webb at 6 p.m. For directions and more information, go to MikeWebb.tv. Foothill Family Church, building strong, spirit-filled lives through God's Word. Now, when the angels in, in Psalm 8 are saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? They're going, Wow. When the glory of the Lord appeared in Solomon's temple, everybody went, Wow. When Jesus shows up and does miracles... Everybody goes, wow. When the lame were healed and the sick were, the, the, the demon possessed were delivered and the, the sick were healed and, and, and all the things that Jesus did, everybody went, wow. When Jesus taught, and all of these things the Bible attaches to the glory of God. When Jesus taught, everybody said, wow, we've never heard it like that before. The glory of God is the wow factor. When God created man, he put something on him that every other being, which at that time all there were were the angels, went, wow. And then they questioned it. They said, what is man that you gave him the wow factor? Now, folks, we know what happened. We know that Satan came into the middle of this. Satan saw clearly... The Bible says that Satan had a position of authority. We, we went through some of this last week. The Bible says that Satan had a position of authority before God ever created Adam and Eve. It said that he had a throne. That means dominion. It says that he was perfect in all of his ways until iniquity was found in him. It says that he was most, the most beautiful and the wisest of all the creatures, uh, creatures or creation that existed at that time. Satan was the wow factor of God. Now, I'm not saying he had the same thing that God put on man. I don't believe he did. But he had the highest or the greatest level, the most of whatever you could have at the time and in the, 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 uh, the age that he lived and ruled. And then he rebelled against God and he lost everything. Now, imagine that from Satan's point of view. You know, the devil always tries to tell you where you messed up. Folks, I want you to consider how bad the devil messed up. He had everything. 
And then he rebelled against God trying to get more. And he was reduced to nothing. Nothing. And everybody that rebelled with him saw. This is the guy we followed. The angels, the two-thirds of the angels that didn't rebel against God, they see Satan is nothing. He's less than nothing. He used to be something, but now he's nothing. So when Satan sees God crown man with glory and honor, put the wow factor on man. Now, folks, i got to tell you, for me, I, I, I'm, I'm not trying to tell you this is what you ought to think. I'm not trying to tell you this is what you ought to believe. But for me, the wow factor means the supernatural. That's what distinguished man from anything else and everything else. Now, But it goes even further than that because angels are supernatural. And man had something they didn't have. So when Satan, who has been reduced to nothing, sees that man has been crowned with glory and honor, God has given him the wow factor in even a greater measure than Satan ever had, that becomes his goal. To take the wow factor from man. To steal man's glory. So he comes into the Garden of Eden. He deceives Eve in the same way that he instigated iniquity himself. He told Eve, you can have more than what you have. You're the ruler of the earth. You and your husband Adam are are literally the gods of this world. But God knows there's so much more. And you could have that if you only disobey God and do what I tell you to do. That's why the idea for me, the idea for Adam, uh, for for, uh, Satan, coming into the Garden of Eden as a snake is just ridiculous. If he comes in as a snake, Eve's going to say, well, you're under me. How do you know so much? Why would I believe you? Your great knowledge doesn't seem to be working for you too well because you're a creeping thing upon the earth. So he had to come in with something that, in my estimation, my thinking, agree, disagree, I don't care, it doesn't matter to me. But in my thinking, he had to come in in some way that made him appear to be that which he was not. And really the word translated serpent in Genesis is just the word deceiver. He came in as the deceiver. Serpent is just a type of that which represents deception. doesn't say he came in as a snake. It said he came in as a deceiver. I think he came in looking better than Adam. He had to have something to him that made him appear to have credibility with whatever he was saying. Well, what was he after? He was after man's glory. And guess what he got? He stole man's glory. Now, that doesn't mean Satan now has glory. It just means man lost it. The Bible says that when Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, it says that they recognized instantly they knew they were ashamed. In other words, they became conscious of a change in themselves. They became conscious of their own shortcomings. They knew they were naked. Well, they were naked before they ate the fruit. What happened? I think the light of the glory of God went out on them. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, it says, Wherefore, as by one man, talking about Adam, Wherefore, as by one man, sin entered the world, and death by sin. Therefore, all, King James says, therefore, all have sinned. That's not the original, that's not the correct translation. The word have is not there. Therefore, all sinned. In other words, when Adam sinned because you and I were in Adam. 
When Adam sinned, we sinned. God looks at things differently than we do. God doesn't look at the actions of the individual alone. God looks at their seed or those that will follow them. The Bible says that uh, Levi paid tithes in Abraham to Melchizedek. Well, Levi wasn't even born. How could Levi pay tithes in Abraham to Melchizedek? Because Levi was Abraham's seed. You and I are Adam's seed. So when Adam sinned, he sinned for all of us. That's why Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned. And what do we fall short of? The glory of God. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In other words, I believe that scripture is saying, When everybody sinned in Adam, we fell from glory. We fell from that place of being crowned with glory and honor. We lost, the man lost dominion over the earth. Satan then becomes the God of this world. That's the only way that the Bible could, t- could say legitimately in 2 Corinthians 4 4 that Satan is the God of this world. How could Satan be the God of this world if God's the creator of this world? Because God gave the authority of this world to Adam and Eve and they gave it to Adam, uh, to, uh, Satan through disobedience to God. Satan says as much. When he uh, shows Jesus in, uh, in, what is it, Luke chapter 4, where he's tempting Jesus, he showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and all the glory of them. And he said, this will I give to whomsoever I will because it's been delivered to me. Well, who delivered it to him? God sure didn't give it to him. Who delivered it to him? Adam did. So man fell from glory and Satan knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly what he was doing. Satan has had some experience in that falling stuff. And so that became his goal where mankind was concerned. His means of attacking God was to steal his most precious possession, which was his son, Adam. So now Satan has stolen the glory from mankind. God can't go down immediately and hug Adam to himself because the Bible says God's a consuming fire. Adam is sinful. If God goes down as a natural parent would when their child falls and try to scoop him up in their arms, he destroys man. So what does he do? He shows them the sacrifice. He creates skins for them to clothe them. Where did he get the skins? By making sacrifice of animals. He teaches them that through a blood sacrifice is the only way that they can come back to God, but they can't come back to their original place of glory through the animal sacrifice. They can only come back to a, uh, a granted, credited position of right standing but not true righteousness like they had before. And so for thousands of years, God has to sit by while man tries to work himself back to God. God gives him the law. What's the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law is to show him you can't do this on your own. The purpose of the law was not to get man to keep rules and regulations. The purpose of the law was to show him no matter how much you try, you're not going to be able to live without breaking the rules and regulations, meaning you can't do this on your own, you have to have a Savior. That was the only purpose of the law. The sole purpose of the law. It was an instructor. It was a tutor to show you, you need something more than you. Then God sends Jesus. The glory of God is one of the hardest things to define in all of Scripture. It's designed to show us that God is bigger than anything that we could imagine. Come join us at Foothill Family Church as we learn about Him together. This is Foothill Family Church with Mike Webb. My coworker, Elaine, 
um, she would talk to me about the Foothill Church. Oh, she learned this, she learned that. And I just felt like, why don't I know this stuff? And I finally decided to start coming here. And the more I came, the more I got attached. And I even bring my mom now. Yeah, she got saved here, so I'm blessed. Join us Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. or Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Visit us online at mikeweb.tv. Foothill Family Church, building strong, spirit-filled lives through God's Word.